Hi, this is Suzanne Goldenberg in Copenhagen. It's Friday, the 18th of December, the day that could decide the fate of our planet. It's the last and final day of the Copenhagen climate change negotiations. Barack Obama comes to town today on Air Force One. He's a man everyone's going to be watching. But Hillary Clinton got here first, and she shook up the negotiations by saying that America was prepared to sign on to $100 billion in climate aid cash. It can no longer be about us versus them. This group of nations pitted against that group. We all face the same challenge together. I get a sense that she's setting the table, and I think he's going to deliver a, a knockout punch. But just what is this summit going to achieve? It was supposed to get the world on side to prevent the most catastrophic climate change. Instead, after all the talk, all the negotiations and sleepless nights, a leaked document is showing today the promises here are still going to lead to a three degree rise in temperature. And that's too much for African countries and for small island states like Maldives who stand to disappear entirely. So the tragedy of the situation is that those countries which have not at all contributed to the problem of climate change that's been human-induced uh, are the ones who would be the worst sufferers of the impacts of climate change. Plus, when in doubt, send for the rock stars. The last people on earth we should be getting to do this agreement are politicians. Unfortunately, they're the end people we got. I'm John Dennis in London, where we'll be devoting the rest of the programme to our Friday discussion. This week, how anti-terrorism legislation has changed the way we're policed. And what really concerns me is a cavalier attitude to things like civil liberties. Hi, it's Suzanne Goldenberg again, the U.S. environment correspondent for The Guardian. And right now I'm in the Bela Center in Copenhagen. This is where it's all happening. For the last two weeks, hundreds of negotiators have been holed up here trying to hammer out a deal to stop global warming. They've had sleepless nights, long days, arguments leaked documents, demonstrations, it's all been happening here and it all comes to a head today. So what's going to happen? Is there going to be a deal? Now we don't know that yet, but what we do know is that the deal that it's shaping up might not matter very much anyway. Leaked documents show commitments from the industrialized countries for cutting emissions still aren't going to be enough to stop the most catastrophic effects of climate change. They only add up to three degrees. That's above the two degree threshold that this conference was aiming for and it's double the 1.5 degrees that island states and African countries say is really within the safety zone. We've had previous reports that show that that kind of temperature rise could leave about half a billion people at risk of starvation. I'm Arki Pachori, chairman of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. There are some parts of the world which even with 1.5 degrees Celsius would suffer a great deal of hardship and impacts that clearly would be very disruptive of their normal way of life, of their, of their ability to pursue livelihoods and what represents at least a decent or stable form of existence. Uh, so, you know, if we are going to be concerned about some of these communities and these societies, uh, then maybe 1.5 is what we should be targeting. But on the other hand, 
if we can find means by which some of these communities can be helped uh, to withstand the impacts of climate change, to be able to adapt to them. And this, of course, would involve a substantial flow of financial resources to help them. Then maybe one can go above 1.5, maybe one can go to 2 degrees. Uh, we in the IPCC have clearly assessed the impacts for different levels of temperature rise. So it's really for the negotiators, it's for the leadership of different countries in the world to exercise their judgment and then decide what is it that they would like to target as the ultimate increase in temperature that would be permissible. So today's a big day. The bosses are here. All the world leaders are coming to finally put their names on the deal that's going to stop global warming or not. The U.S. president flies in on Air Force One and there's a lot of speculation on what he is going to do to convince the world that America is ready to act. We've had the warm-up act already with Hillary Clinton. She flew into town and sort of electrified the summit by saying that America was on board with a European plan to raise up to $100 billion a year for poor countries to help them adapt to climate change. The United States is prepared to work with other countries toward a goal of jointly mobilizing $100 billion a year by 2020. This will include a significant focus on forestry and adaptation, particularly, again, I repeat, for the poorest and most vulnerable among us. America's really been working this summit. They've had events every day. They've hauled out high-level administration officials. Yesterday, we saw a whole delegation from Congress led by Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and the message was, look, don't believe all the stuff about trouble in the Senate. We're serious about climate change. We're going to make sure you see the changes in America, which is still one of the world's biggest polluters, that will keep temperatures down, that will keep the rest of the world safe. We're very hopeful, and uh, we're here to play our role and take the lead where necessary, learn from others and where appropriate, and uh, very proud of the leadership of President Obama, the work that Senator excuse me, Secretary Clinton is doing here and uh, support the commitment to help raise the funds for, back, uh, for de developing nations. Here's Earl Blumenauer, a member of Congress from Oregon, cycling evangelist and an early believer in the clean energy revolution. I asked him what Obama could possibly do to top Hillary Clinton's act. I think the, the pieces are coming together in, in a way that we haven't seen in terms of uh, the United States being in uh, international uh, agreements. Uh, I think back to Johannesburg and we were sort of isolated and alone and uh, urging people not to give up on the United States. I think President Obama is going to give some indication why they shouldn't. Gordon Brown, you know, keeps describing it as a domino. So we had one big domino fall. That's uh, Hillary Clinton's offer, you know, that the U.S. is going to sign on to this $100 billion. What's going to happen next, do you think, to sort of get the elements, not just from America, but from the international community? Looking around, what do you think is going to move next, if anything? I would hesitate to, to, uh, to speculate. The momentum seems to be going in the right direction, and every time somebody seems grumpy, then the daylight come through. These are um, people who are far more experienced than I say this is the pattern that you expect coming down to a deadline and nobody wants to walk away from here without an agreement. 
Now, of course, it's not all about America. This is an international negotiation. There's 192 countries represented here, and there have been dozens of world leaders addressing this summit. Il faut une véritable réunion de travail. From Nicolas Sarkozy, who gave a passionate speech yesterday, asking everybody who would dare to say that that we couldn't deal with this challenge, to Angela Merkel, to Ahmadinejad, everyone's here and everyone's got a stake in the decisions that will be made. And maintenance of nuclear arsenals, which can be used for development of new technologies and poverty alleviation. We also propose that the year 2011 be designated as the year of a change in the consumption models and reduction of pollutions in the world. Now it's been two weeks of long days locked in the windowless rooms of this uh, convention center and it's pretty easy to forget that there's anything going on out there but of course there is a real world there and what happens in the real world very much depends on what is decided or not decided inside. Predictably the very big issues that have been on the table for the last 17 years since this process began are still there and it really comes down in the end to the deal that's going to be done between broadly speaking the rich countries and the poor ones in terms of on the one hand the level of ambition in cuts that's going to be adopted by the West and the amount of money they're going to pay to help for adaptation and technology transfer to the southern countries and that still seems to be at the heart of what's made this couple of weeks very difficult. That was Tony Juniper who used to head Friends of the Earth UK. For moral support he brought along someone to the summit here who rather aptly, is known for his doom and gloom, the front man of Radiohead, Tom York. It seems to me that basically it's, it's all about passing the buck. They're, they're just coming up with different ways, different mechanisms of passing, but obviously the carbon trading thing is a marvellous way to pass, pass the buck. But it's not just that, it's politically passing the buck round and round and round and round and round and round and round. And round. I mean, China and America game against yeah, each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is all from outside, so I don't know, you know? Yeah, I have no yeah. idea. The last people on earth we should be getting to do this agreement of politicians. Unfortunately, they're the only people we got because they're the last people on earth who'd actually commit themselves to something that, that actually risks themselves. And you know? isn't this? I mean, I don't mean that negative. I mean, they're just that's the way they're built. You know what really bothers me? Well, a obviously the NGOs being kicked out that yeah. bothers me yeah. because they're the ones that kept that kept this argument going when nobody else gave a fuck. Yeah. The second thing that really bothers me is that what's going to happen is what always happens at the G8 summits. They come out and go, I mean, we've done marvellous work, yeah. it's all absolutely marvellous, and then people like you, two weeks later, yeah. eventually, in the editorial area, yeah. get a piece that says, it was all bollocks, yeah. it's a waste of space, billows and billows of smoke of technical alphabet soup. Don't even imagine that we're not going to see through anything you create. Yeah. If, it's, if it's see-through, we're going to see through it. Yeah. This, this is not about aid. Yeah. This is not charity. Now, one thing we've learned about these summits is that they are full of commitment phobics. Countries really don't come with the goods until the very last moment. That moment is here. So what we need to see is how strong are the emissions cuts that industrialized countries are willing to make? What are the new emerging economies going to do about global warming? How much cash are we going to see at the table for poor countries are going to be the worst affected by climate change? And will those poor countries sign on to a deal? Those are all the elements that need to come together here today if we're going to see a genuinely strong and comprehensive deal that will stop global warming.
So that's where we are as of early this morning, but we're expecting things to change throughout the day. I'll be helping to update the website as we go along, and there'll be a special podcast uploaded from here at the end of the talks in Copenhagen. We'll explain what it all means and get reaction from all sides. And of course, it'll all be on our website as well as on your Guardian Daily podcast feed. And there's full coverage from Copenhagen today at guardian.co.uk slash environment. Well, there's been anger at the way demonstrations in Copenhagen have been policed. But here in the UK, the police have been forced to review their strategy at large-scale protests after the death in April of passerby Ian Tomlinson at the G20 demonstrations in London. Well, the reporter who broke that story was The Guardian's Paul Lewis. He's here to discuss the ways policing is changing. Also joining us is the civil liberties lawyer, Anna Matsola, and on the phone, a former commander in the Metropolitan Police, David Gilbertson. David, you've said that the police are in crisis. Why is that? I think they've lost a sense of direction. One of the things that uh, really concerns me about the the police service these days is that the leadership that they I think they, they need and they deserve just doesn't appear to be there. I, I gave 35 years of my adult life to policing and I'm not the sort of person that, that complains just for the sake of it. But really, I am disappointed in the way things that are going at the, are going at the moment. And, and what really concerns me is a cavalier attitude to things like civil liberties, which once, not so many years ago, were, were at the core of, of police understanding of the way to deal with public protest and civil protest and so on. Anna, do you think that's the case, that civil liberties uh, were once uh, more um, central to policing in a way that they're not at present? I've only been involved in policing law for the past couple of years, so I'm not able to bring that perspective as to what it used to be like. But certainly other police law practitioners don't sort of look back to the golden days of policing when, uh, no, when they respected... No, I'm not suggesting to, there was yeah. a golden age, Anna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, Um, but I mean, certainly my experience in recent years has been that the police might um, be aware of their human rights obligations, but actually, you know, on the streets when they're coming face to face with people, um, they are not putting what training they've been given into practice and they are not um, carrying out the right balancing exercise in individual circumstances. I mean, one of the things, just a, a classic example, I think, is use of section 43 and 44. Could you explain what they are, please? Well, the the powers to designate certain areas under the Terrorism Act 2000 as areas where you can conduct searches without reasonable suspicion. Now, the whole of London has been designated on a rolling basis as, as an area for designated searches under Section 44 and has been for some time. Now, I mean, I'm doing some research at the moment, and it really concerns me. But between January in 2003 and February 2008, there have been just over 190,000 people stopped and searched under Section 44 in the capital. Just 1%, that's about 2,000, have been arrested. Not one of those arrests was for a terrorist-related offence. And the problem is that the, te- the definition of what constitutes terrorist-related activity has is effectively been unilaterally widened by on-the-ground police officers. It isn't necessarily about training. It's about interpretation of that training and basically a cavalier attitude to lawful protest. 
And Paul, you also you found yourself on the on the sort of sharp end of uh, <laughs> the police um, using anti-terror laws um, to to sort of stop and search and arrest people recently. When you were taking photographs of uh, a London landmark, tell us a bit about that. Well, I, I'm not a photographer, and I wasn't there. Um, I mean, I was there to test the law, really. At the end of well, four days before I went out, um, all police forces in England and Wales received advice from the Association of Chief Police Officers, basically saying. Stop stopping people under anti-terrorism legislation. You know, use common sense, do it properly. I mean, if there's a genuine suspicion that something's up here, then of course go and speak to people. But you do need to stop stopping and searching people on a routine basis who you see photographing and filming buildings. So I went out with a photographer and, uh, you know, the intention, we drew up a list of 10 places actually around the capital that we were going to go and film and see the reaction, and it only really took one, and it was within two minutes of arriving at the Gherkin. I mean, I was initially told by a security guard that I couldn't film the bottom half of the building, only the top, and if I filmed the bottom half, then police would be called. And then within a split second, a plainclothes police officer from City of London Police was there, and then within a few more minutes, I was a special branch was informed, and I was stopped and searched under, the, under Section 44. And uh, earlier this week, an Italian student, Simona Bonomo, told the, told the Guardian how she was arrested in West London, where she'd been filming for an art project. Do you want to know why, why you're filming? Why not? Is there any reason at all? No, no. Just for fun. Just for fun? Mm-hmm. Right. Why not? Leave these buildings. What? These buildings. Mm. Do you like what we do you like looking at them buildings, do you? Yeah, they are beautiful. Are they? Yes. And that's why you're... Yes. Oh, yeah. So you're basically filming for fun? Yeah. I don't believe you. No? no. <laughs> then what? Do you have any proof? Um, really, but I've seen you film. I just wanted to know why you're filming, that's all. Yeah, and I told you you don't believe me, so what? Can I see what you filmed? Uh, no, I don't think you have the right to do that. Well, I can have a look if I want to. If I, uh, if I believe it may be linked to terrorism, I think, I oh, wow. terrorism. I'm well, not sure. This is an iconic style. Uh, maybe iconic just style. because I dress like a like terrorist that. or what. No. No, so then um, I don't think you no. have any right to believe that I'm a terrorist. I never said you were. I never said you were. And I mean, this was another case where anti-terror laws were, were, used, were cited for disproportionate action by the police. Yes, it was a perfect example of, of the way in which Section 44 of the Terrorism Act is used in pretty much any circumstance where the police want to get rid of someone. Um, and part of the problem is the way that the law is drafted. It's very wide. The definition of terrorism is very wide. And even if you know the police are given quite clear guidance on, on the circumstances in which they can and cannot stop people under it, the, the way they're interpreting it is really uh, any circumstance in which they think that the person is behaving inappropriately, they will stop and search them. And, and here, the PCSO, Police Community Support Officer, actually admitted on, on the film that um, Simona took that the reason he was stopping her was that he thought she was being cocky. Um, and now, so far as I re- I'm aware, that's not, you know, a basis on which on which to stop and search someone. Um, but that's exactly what they did. The situation escalated. She ended up being detained and taken to a police station um, when, in fact, all she'd been doing was... Um, photographing a building as part of her art project. David, the the, the police seem to be increasingly viewing the public as as a potential terror threat um, in doing the most innocuous of of activities. 
can I read something to you? I, I, I've been conducting some anonymised research with police officers over the last few months and, and interviewing them on the strict basis of anonymity. And some of the things I've been hearing are absolutely amazing. I mean, the problem is we've discussed training and the attitude of senior officers. The attitude of most senior officers is good. The, the, a lot of the training is good, but the way it's interpreted by officers at ground level is and I'll use the word appalling. I mean, if we want to get a situation where we're playing into the hands of putative terrorists who are looking for confirmation that British society is their enemy, then look no further than the attitude of some junior officers. It's a very brief piece. This is an interview with an officer in uh, on a borough, and he said, these are his words. On my borough, we've got one of the largest populations of Pakistanis anywhere in the country. So that really puts us on the spot. There's no doubt in my mind that a good 50% of the youngsters would be happy to blow me and mine to smithereens, given half a chance. So I see it as our job, and so do the rest of my team, to get out there and pick up as much intel as possible to feed into the system. That way we might stop another 7-7 happening. And if that means stopping and turning over 20 young Muslims a day, then so be it. It's a price worth paying. This isn't a race thing or an anti-Muslim thing. It's about letting them know that we're out there watching them and keeping innocent people safe. Well, heaven help us if that attitude is replicated elsewhere. Anna, you're grimacing hearing that. I mean, what's your reaction to that? Um, well, I just think it's terrifying, really, that, you know, that's actually... I mean, that's certainly how we often think that officers on the ground think. Um, but to have it confirmed is slightly frightening. The fact that they are just taking the, the view that it doesn't actually matter... Um, how many people's rights they violate um, so long as they get information which may or may not be useful at some point is, is, is really quite frightening. And I would totally support what David had been saying before about how at senior levels there seems to be a far greater understanding of, of, of the ways in which policing um, must be carried out in order to be effective. However, on the ground, um, and there's been a lot of reporting about um, territorial support officers on the ground that there's often the attitude that was just represented in the quote that David gave that really people's people's rights are irrelevant when it comes to obtaining information that can be used for policing if someone is stopped on the on the street uh, in a public place filming as Paul was or as or as uh, Simona Bonomo was what should they do what you know what are their what are their rights and how should they react well, if the stop is under Section 44 of the Terrorism Act, as it was with Paul and with um, Simona, they have the right, well, in fact, they have the right to, in any kind of search to be informed of the basis on which the police are searching them. And that's often something that the police don't say. Um, so they have the right to be informed um, of what the search is for. They don't have to give their name or address. They don't have to remove anything other than outer clothing. Um, and, if, and if the police do ask them to, to remove any other clothing. It has to be um, in front of an officer of the same sex. The police can search um, anything that they're holding with them. They cannot, in my view, search a camera. They cannot, in my view, ask to see the um, film on the camera unless they have reason to believe that the person has been taking the photographs for terrorist purposes. And I think that, that's something that, that's often misunderstood. Each... Can I just... Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, to interrupt. Police, police, do th police do, however, think that they do have yeah. the entitlement to look at the images on the camera. I mean, it is a point of contention. So the Home Office stroke Met will tell officers um, 
Uh, if you believe the images could be used in connection with terrorism, then you can have a look at someone's memory card. So it is a point of contention. It is a point of probably contention. Probably one that will be settled in, or, or uh, ruled on in court eventually. Perhaps, but, you know, I'd, my advice would be that if an officer says that he intends to search your your phone or your camera, you should um, ask the basis on which they're carrying out that search. And you sh- certainly they are not allowed to confiscate the phone. Can I throw something else into the pot as well? Which is, um, it's not often said, but it has to be asked, to what extent is you know, um, mission creep and policing and problems with policing, can, to what extent can it be, be blamed on a kind of apathetic uh, and lazy citizenry? Um, to what extent should should people be more aware of their rights? To what extent have we slightly kind of sleepwalked into this situation? And the kind of things I, I think about, I mean, actually, a lawyer within this building, and I won't say who she was, mentioned to me after our story about um, Section 44 that she herself had been stopped by some police officers who said, you know, you're not allowed to film around this area of a police station. She, uh, it was not a police station, sorry, a railway station. She happened to be photographing the railway station. And she just thought, well, actually, no, I'm not supposed to be doing this, and put her camera away and walked off. And actually, I think one of the things that has changed this year is that people have started uh, getting out their cameras and their mobile phones and recording the actions of police. And it is, it's provided a new layer of accountability. And that, more than anything else, I think will be the kind of the, 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 the conscience on an officer's shoulder. And he'll constantly, he or she will constantly be aware that everything they do um, could end up on the internet and could end up as the basis of a complaint. David, do you, sorry, can I ask you, David? I mean, just to, I know you're not in the force anymore, but I mean, do you think that this this level of accountability, which is undoubtedly there now, um, has sort of put the wind up the police a bit and thought, well, we know we're just going to have to change the way we operate? Oh, but- a- a- absolutely. I mean, five years ago, we didn't have this. Uh, three years ago, we didn't have it. And it's... Um, don't think that the police won't be a, be able to get round it, though. Uh, there are all sorts of ways that uh, um, imaginative officers will get round this. But in fact, um, the video that, that was published in The Guardian the other day actually disproves that to a certain extent, because Simona Bonomo was in fact filming the officer as she spoke to him. You know, logic would dictate that police officers should, um, if they know they're being filmed, behave you know, according to the rules. But in fact, you know, the Nicky Fisher film from the G20 protests, for example, where officers must have known that everyone around them had um, cameras. And I've got another case... Um, where, again, there were photographers everywhere, uh, and yet the um, police still saw fit to, to, um, to take another photographer to the side and, and effectively assault and detain him in full view of um, other, other photographers who yeah, they knew were no filming. There's no account of so. stupidity. David, I mean, just to just to close, I mean, if if you were joining the, the police now as a as a young man, I mean, you know, how would that compare with when you joined, uh, you know, many years ago? Well, it, t- totally different, and you know, you know, the, the, there's a whole there's an attitudinal change that uh, it just wasn't there um, thirty years ago, and and you know, I, I don't want to sound like someone who looks back and says well, it, it was better then. You know, it was different then. Paul's point is absolutely right about. There are so many people who just say, well, I've got nothing to hide, so that's okay. It isn't okay. And I don't think people should just roll over. A comment that was made to me by one young officer, again, anonymized, I I think for me, put it in perspective, he said, we're frontline troops. We're frontline troops in the war on terror. And his attitude was, irrespective of uh, of any uh, intervention by senior officers, we're fighting a war. They're not fighting a war. 
They're not in Hellman. They're in Liverpool Street. <laughs> David, it's been fascinating. Thanks ever so much for talking to us today. And uh, thank you, Anna Matsola and Paul Lewis. Phil Maynard was the producer of today's edition of Guardian Daily with Andy Duckworth in Copenhagen. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.